later on, as we now know, that this fluid isn't really a fluid at all. It's electrons. And electrons are negatively charged. And it's the electrons that are building up in the clouds. And it's the electrons that are coming down to the ground. And that's why he collected negative charge in his jars, because it was the electrons. But that, that tremendously perplexed him for the rest of his life. He was never able to answer that question either. Welcome to Science for the People. I'm Rochelle Saunders. With me is Tim Jorgensen. He's a professor in the departments of radiation medicine and biochemistry at the Georgetown University School of Medicine in Washington, D.C., and is also the chair of Georgetown's Radiation Safety Committee, a consociate member of the National Council on Radiation Protection, and a member of the D.C. Science Writers Association. He's the 2017 recipient of the AIP Science Communication Award and the author of two books, Strange Glow, The Story of Radiation, and Spark, The Life of Electricity and the Electricity of Life. He's with me today to talk about the most recently published of the two, Spark. Tim, welcome to Science for the People. Thank you very much, Rochelle. Thanks for inviting me onto your show. So what prompted you to write this book? Was it a gap you spotted in accessible science writing? Was it a common misunderstanding of these topics? Or has this book just sort of been percolating for a good long while? Well, as you mentioned, um, Spark is my second book. The first book, uh, Strange Glow, was was related to my profession in radiation. And I encountered lots of people, very educated people, uh, doctors, lawyers, engineers, etc., who had very um, uh, limited understanding of radiation. And I always used to get some pretty strange questions. And um what brought this to a head was uh, in uh, when they had the earthquake in Japan that caused the accident at Fukushima. I was on the news a lot then, answering questions for reporters and a lot of network television, CNN, et cetera. And after that, the number of questions that I got from the public just began to explode. And um, I would get emails and telephone calls of people asking all kinds of questions about radiation. And I was looking for some type of uh, book that I could send them to, because to, their, their questions were pretty sophisticated questions, not the kinds of things you could just answer in two or three minutes on the phone. And so I was looking for some kind of book that explained these things to the public, and um, I couldn't find one. And it's not that there aren't a lot of radiation books out there, but they tend to be um, either textbooks that are written in scientific jargon and are not really accessible to the public, or they tend to be agenda books. You know, So when you read a book that's called Nuclear Power, The Power to Save the World, uh, you know what that's about, nuclear power to power the end of the world. You know what that's about. And, you know, they had an agenda. So um, I, I thought, well, why don't I give this a stab? And so um, I wrote that book and it came out like five years after Fukushima did. And it, it got a lot of attention uh, and um, and uh, and praise and, and some awards, as you mentioned. Um, and so um, the book did very well. and. My editor at Princeton University Press and my literary agent were encouraging me to write another book, but I said all I had to say about radiation in the first book, and I thought, I don't want to do another radiation book. Um, so they, were, well, they said, well, why don't you write another book on another topic? And, um, and so a lot of people, when I wrote the first book on radiation, I included 
um, some stories trying to compare electricity with radiation because I thought the people know more about electricity. So I can make an, a direct analogy between the two and that might help them understand radiation. But what I found is that some people um, knew less about electricity than I thought, but also there was a lot of interest in the electrical parts of that book, um, and uh, which kind of surprised me. So uh, Natural History Magazine, which is um, a magazine of the Museum of Natural History in New York, they asked if they could do an excerpt from Strange Glow from one of the chapters. And I, I said, sure. So, so um, I didn't really pay much attention to what they were going to excerpt from the book. And then after they published it, they sent me a copy of it. And the whole, the whole article was about electricity. It had nothing, <laughs> nothing to do with radiation. <laughs> so I, so my wife actually suggested to me, she said, well, why don't you write a book about, about uh, electricity in the same kind of style that you did for, for radiation? And, um, and so that's why, that's why I wrote the electricity book, Spark. So it's basically um, similar style. And the style is a narrative style. It tells stories and you try to convey the, inf the technical information within the story. So uh, Spark is the story of electricity and Strange Glow was the story of radiation. I really like the way you introduced it quite early in the introduction. Um, I've got a, a quote here that really stuck out to me while I was reading it, which is, um, people think of electricity as an alien physical force outside of their bodies that's confined within their electrical devices and channeled from appliance to appliance through wires. They don't appreciate that electricity is also a biological force essential to the life of all animals that have a nervous system and even those that don't. And I think that really captures something about about electricity is it's such an everywhere all the time aspect of our lives that we don't even think about it it's sort of this like modern magic and it's now so associated with the things we plug into walls right right but that always wasn't the case you know um uh early on uh there was a famous dispute which your listeners probably are familiar with between Galvani and Volta, both Italian scientists, Galvani believed that animals produced electricity and Volta believed that they didn't. <laughs> and, um, and so um, they had a, uh, a feud over this. Now, it's not that Volta didn't think animals could produce electricity. He, he, he knew about electric eels. He knew about other electric fishes. And um, but he thought in order for an animal to produce electricity, they had to um, have an electricity producing organ in their body. And you, and as, as these fish do, um, other animals didn't have electricity producing organs that anybody could find. And so he didn't think, um, he didn't think that it was possible that animals produce electricity. And um, this ultimately led to his discovery of the battery because uh, the, the experiments that Galvani were doing about animal electricity, he was taking frog legs, cutting frogs, legs off of dead frogs, and impaling them on hooks on fences. And when he, he'd start to string wires in different ways, and when he strung them in certain combinations, he could get the frog leg to move. And so he thought, that that was evidence of, of uh, animal electricity at work. And Volta, though, he recognized that the hooks 
that Galvani were using were bronze. And the fence that he was had hung the hooks on were was made of iron. And he and Volta knew that if you have two dissimilar metals, that you can you can have artifacts in your work because they they can produce electricity. And um, that was the beginning of his developing the battery. So um, the idea that um, electricity was in it was produced by animals or not produced by animals goes way 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 back. Uh, it's only now that we've uh, we've kind of uh, uh, restricted electricity in, into our cell phones and computers. <laughs> you know, uh, other people didn't think that way in the beginning. It was fascinating to read how tightly entwined our understanding of electricity is with biology experiments, basically, frogs' legs, eels, um, electric catfish. We have done so much of our learning about electricity through history by playing around with biology, which is something that I think we all kind of don't know a lot of the time. We, we often forget that it's such an integral part of life. And I had no idea so much of the history of our understanding of it is so tightly entwined with experimentation uh, that boils down to a lot of biology experiments. Yeah, I mean, electricity and neuroscience um, kind of progressed together. They were both very uh, primitive sciences, and um, one really needed the other in order to progress. So as I've already mentioned, the frog legs could be stimulated to move um, with electricity. And in fact, frog legs were the way that people detected electricity. There, there were originally no instruments to detect electricity. And it was a very, very sensitive um, way to detect electricity. And some scientists actually hooked up chart recorders um, to frog legs. And um, they, as the, as the, frog leg would contract in response to electricity, it would, would pull the pen along the chart recorder and you could you could uh, get a plot of the of the electricity over time. And um, and that was the best way to rec record electricity was was using a frog leg. Um, so later on, uh, electricity was actually used to probe um, neurological responses and um, and Galvani's uh, nephew, actually, he went well beyond frog legs, and he started using electricity. He actually started using using uh, Volta's battery um, to uh, shock the muscles of cadavers and get them to move. And um, he would do some quite uh, extraordinary public demonstrations of this by getting uh, the bodies of executed prisoners, fre freshly executed prisoners' bodies, and then using um, electricity from the batteries to stimulate their muscles and get them to move. And supposedly he could get them to sit up and change their facial expressions. Um, and this, uh, to the, he he was trying. He was a serious scientist. He was trying to get um, to discover. Um, Use the, use the electricity to probe the the basis of of, of neuro, neurology. Um, so so he was very a serious scientist. It wasn't just an act. Um, he, he but some of the people who observed this actually um, didn't really understand what he was doing, and some thought that he was trying to bring these people back to life. 
And um, and um, one of the people that um, that became aware of his name was Aldiri. Galvani's nephew was Aldiri. Um, one of the people that was aware of these experiments by Aldiri was Mary Shelley's father. Now, Mary Shelley, as you, your listeners probably are aware, is the author of Frankenstein. And although she was only about three years old when Al, uh, Aldiri was was doing his um, his experiments, um, her father was was uh, he had scientists among his social uh, circle. Mm-hmm. Who did know about these experiments that Aldiri was doing, and so um, and so she, it's believed that he told his daughter about these things at some point when she was a child or a teenager, and then she converted this into the story of Frankenstein, where where a doctor actually um, takes body parts and brings a person back to life. So uh, it's interesting, you know. Uh, <laughs> How uh, fiction and, and uh, science are are intertwined in that in that instance. Absolutely, and it's certainly not the only time that electricity was used as a sort of sideshow, as a, a presentation. Um, there's a lot of that entwined with static electricity as well. Some really interesting sort of performances and demonstrations done with static electricity that I found really fascinating. Yeah, so static electricity. Um, is uh, the static electricity is electricity that is not moving. It's, it's not, it's, it's static. It's, that's what, why it's called static electricity. So we're familiar with this because you can produce static electricity, but in the wintertime, if you scuff your feet on a carpet, you can, you can produce static electricity in your body and get a little shock when you, when you touch something, it's possible to do this by, by rubbing a glass rod with silk and make static electricity. And so it, in the beginning of electrical research, uh, this was, and electrical shows, um, this was the only way to do it, was to produce uh, static electricity. There were no batteries uh, available, and there was no, no, no generators or anything like that. And so much of the work in the beginning was done with static electricity. And again, um, like with Aldini, it was a... Um, People, scientists did public demonstrations, and um, and so uh, one of the famous demonstrations uh, was the Flying Boy Act. And uh, again, this was done by a serious scientist Gray, and he um, he what he did was he rubbed. He had a child, a boy. And he suspended the child uh, somehow with silk ribbons. Silk is an insulator. Okay, it doesn't conduct electricity. So by suspending the boy in a flying-like position with with silk ribbons, the boy was electrically isolated from the ground. And then he would rub a, a rod, a glass rod with silk, and he'd touch it to the boy's feet, and he'd do this over and over again. Each time he did that, the boy became more and more charged with static electricity. And then he would put a book in front of the child or some feathers, and the child, by waving his finger back and forth over the um, over the book, he could get the pages to turn, um, he could get the, the feathers to move, et cetera. And people were just amazed by this. And um, it was also uh, notable in science that um, that this is the first example of um, showing that the human body could actually be charged 
with electricity that you could that the body could support a considerable amount of electrical charge. So that was the that was the scientific aspect of it. But the public just uh, enjoyed these demonstrations. Um, it's believed. Um, it's actually it's pretty certain that. Uh, Benjamin Franklin, when he was in Philadelphia, witnessed a traveling show of static electricity. And that's how he became um, so obsessed. And and he really was obsessed with learning how electricity worked. And um, he wrote to now, now uh, people knew about electricity ever since people rubbed amber and got sparks off of of that gemstone. Um, So they knew about it. and, And there were scientists studying it. Benjamin Franklin was not the first person to study electricity, but he was the person who made the greatest advances in the study of electricity. And many of the electrical terms that we know today come from his experiments um, with static electricity. And it wasn't just the famous kite experiment, okay? Um, He also did um, a a number of other things, and and he named things that that we use the same terms today, such as current, positive electricity, the negative electric charge; um, he, he, those are terms that that Franklin invented, and um, and we still use the same terminology today. And um, the kite experiment demonstrated that static electricity um, was uh, stored in clouds, and it was the same static electricity that you could uh, get by rubbing a glass rod with silk. And so he, he was able to demonstrate that. But he also did some other demonstrations. He liked to he liked to kill turkeys with electricity. This is one of the little known <laughs> sidelights of like Franklin's work. He believed that if you that electricity, uh, if you killed a turkey with electricity, that turkey uh, would be uncommonly tender. Quote him, and um, and so he would sometimes kill electricity uh, a, a turkey with static electricity that he had stored in a Leyden jar. A Leyden jar is kind of like uh, a mayonnaise jar, a very big mayonnaise jar with electrodes going in to the inside and the outside of it. And you can, by repeatedly touching it with a uh, with a rod, you have um, electrically charged static electricity. You can build up a tremendous amount of electricity within the jar, enough to kill a turkey. And um, and Franklin once accidentally touched the jar. Um, and nearly killed himself. So this is a lot of electricity. So a considerable amount of work was done um, on electricity just by rubbing things together and collecting the charge that that was produced. I love the image of Benjamin Franklin getting really interested and psyched after having watched like one of these traveling static electricity performance. It brings to mind the sort of modern thing I know I do, which is I watch TV or something on the internet or a movie, and there's some bit of like science-esque kind of thing in there, right? It's a mm-hmm. bit of a fantastical movie, but it's been peppered with science. And I'm I'm always the person who's like, how much of that science is real, yo? <laughs> I like bring it up and have a look. And I sort of think of of that as the modern equivalent of Ben Franklin sitting watching a demonstration going like, wonder how they do that. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And he spent, uh, you know, I, I, I actually, I watched this series about Benjamin Franklin, um, you know, that um, was done on PBS by um, um, Ken Burns. It's it recently aired in the, in the United States. And uh, it's a two episode show about Benjamin Franklin. 
And um, I was so disappointed because it really, it, it, it almost entirely focuses on Benjamin Franklin's political activities um, mm. and not very much on the science. But the reason that he became involved in, in, in political activities and the reason he was sent as an ambassador to, to France is because he was so well-known. He was the most well-known American colonist, not because of his politics, but because he of his science. And I thought the series really uh, didn't do justice to Franklin because they said that, first of all, they said in the series that he discovered electricity with a spite experiment, which of course was not true. <laughs> he did not discover electricity. Um, so but- I... I absolutely want to dig into this key cut experiment because this experiment of Benjamin Franklin is one of these like iconic bits of cultural knowledge. I'm not sure any among us really remember where we first learned that a guy named Ben Franklin flew a kite in a lightning storm with a key at the end, but somehow we all know that, right? We've all got that picture in our heads of the guy wearing the hat with the kite and the string and the key. Um, But most of us, including myself, didn't really know the details of exactly what this experiment was or why he did it. So can you run us through this experiment and what the setup was, what prompted it, and like why on earth he decided to fly a kite in a lightning storm with a key attached to it? Okay. So um, yes. So almost every story that that most people learned as a child is incorrect. Okay. Uh, The first thing is incorrect is Benjamin Franklin did not discover electricity by flying a kite in a lightning storm. What Benjamin Franklin was trying to do was um, an experiment to show that clouds could could, um, sequester static electricity. And and the way he attempted to do this was using that Leyden jar that I've already mentioned. So let me go into a little more detailed description of what a Leyden jar is. Mm-hmm. If you took a mayonnaise jar and you lined the inside with aluminum foil and you lined the outside with aluminum foil so that you're sandwiching the glass between the inside and the outside, and then you put uh, through the lid, you, you drill a hole through the lid, and you put some kind of electrode sticking up and attach it by a wire to the inside aluminum foil. And then if you if you have another wire from the outside aluminum foil to the ground, you have created a Leyden jar. And um, by touching the top electrode, with some source of static electricity, such as a rubbed rod with, with silk, as which is the most common way to do that at Franklin's time, you could fill that jar with a considerable amount of electricity, enough to kill a turkey. Okay. And that's so it was a way to store electricity and later use it to conduct all your experiments with. So what Franklin was trying to do was he was trying to get electricity from the cloud into a Leyden jar, which he could take to his laboratory and do these experiments to confirm that, yes, clouds sequestered static electricity, and it was exactly the same type of of phenomena as you get by rubbing a glass rod with silk. And so um, the kite, what he did with the kite was he, he sent a kite up into the sky with a 
with a little uh, projectile on top to attract. Uh, he, he believed that pointed objects attracted electricity um, better. And so he had a little pointed piece of metal on top of the kite. There was no wire. He just used the wetted kite string because um, because a kite string, uh, water is a good conductor of electricity. And so the, the kite string went down and it was attached. Now, he didn't want to get electrocuted, right? He had, he had, had his bad experience with the turkey. He didn't want to get electrocuted. So he attached the, the, um, the kite string to the key. And then also to the key, he attached a silk ribbon, which, as I mentioned, is an electrical insulator. So now he wasn't going to get electrocuted, he thought, by, um, by flying the kite in the storm. And to further keep the, the ribbon dry, he stood in a little hut so that the, the water would come down and just drip off the key, but it wouldn't wet the ribbon and he, and he would be safe from being electrocuted. Um, and then as the charge built up on the kite, he kept touching that key over and over again to that Leyden jar, and he collected the static electricity in the jar which he then used to do his experiments and show it was exactly the same as other static electricity. And so um, that's the true story. <laughs> okay. He demonstrated that clouds built up static electricity, but he was very, very disappointed because he never could figure out how they did it. <laughs> he never understood how static electricity got in clouds. So it was one of the disappointments of his life. See, he proved that there was static electricity in storm clouds, but he was not able to um, to, sh to show how it got in into it. And even now we have a poor understanding of how it happens, but it, it largely has to do with ice crystals. So the clouds have to be very, very cold. Ice crystals rub against each other in the cloud. And that that's how... Um, that's how the static electricity builds up. But to just as a caution to your to your listeners, do not, he was a very, very lucky man, okay? Do not try to replicate his kite experiment with a with a silk ribbon because you could very well get killed. He he hadn't <laughs> he hadn't fully considered the potential of a lightning bolt hitting the kite and 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 killing him. Uh, so um, he was a very, very lucky man. Nobody should try to repeat those experiments because they may very well get killed. It's so funny that we, like you say, it's the idea of him discovering electricity and the actual experiment is perhaps not quite so grand, but way more interesting. And um, it's also interesting to hear the precautions that he took, right? It wasn't just completely... Um, you know, fly a kite and you sort of see the pictures of him holding onto the key, right? And it's like, that, nope, that right, definitely right. happened. <laughs> but, but, the, but the interesting thing about that experiment, it led to a very, very practical result. So he believed because of that experiment that clouds were filled with this static electricity, which produced the lightning bolts, which, which hit buildings and burned them down. And so he thought if you could bleed off the static electricity from the clouds, you would deprive them of all their electrical charge, and they would be unable to um, emit lightning bolts and, and destroy buildings. And so he invented the lightning rod. And um, he, here in Maryland, our state capital has a lightning rod 
that Benjamin Franklin made. And it's it's on our state capitol. And as late as, um, I think, 2016, um, that lightning rod was hit and it protected the capital from being uh, destroyed by a, light, a lightning bolt. So, so at, and when once he once he uh, suggested this, that putting a lightning rod on buildings, um, people started doing this, particularly church steeples and other tall buildings. Churches had were notorious for being struck by lightning because they had these tall steeples, and and so people started putting lightning uh, rods on them. And the church is no longer built, uh, burned down. Now, he had the wrong idea about why they would work. He thought that by bleeding the electricity out of the cloud, it wouldn't be able to create a lightning bolt and strike a building. But the, but the fact is the lightning rod cannot possibly um, uh, drain enough charge out of the cloud to shut down the lightning bolts. The real way that lightning rods work is they get struck by lightning and the the rod immediately conducts the electricity into the ground instead of the church. And, and that's how they protect buildings. Lightning rods protect not because there's less lightning strikes, but when the lightning strikes happen, the electricity goes directly into the ground. Nevertheless, it worked, it, even though it's the wrong reason, it worked tremendously. And after that, lightning uh, destruction of, of churches and other buildings went way down. I want to talk a little bit about the idea of electricity as a fluid, because this was an idea that um, really held in with the science of electricity for quite a while. And still to this day, there's holdovers from that. We still talk, uh, use sort of fluid terms when we talk about electricity. The word current uh, immediately springs to mind as a very kind of fluid word to use for something that isn't actually a fluid. So can you talk a little bit about um, our ideas, our sort of early ideas around electricity and how some of the fluid-like words kind of came to be integrated into the way we think about electricity today? Yes. So um, e yeah, even the word current is a Franklin term and, and Franklin likened electricity to some type of invisible fluid. Uh, he and others um, uh, had this idea because it because it moved from one place to another and it had other properties similar to the to you could put it in a jar like I mentioned you could get it to go flow from one area to another it it seemed like it was a fluid uh, uh, and so people thought that it was an invisible fluid um, and um, somehow they were had to discover what this how this fluid worked. Um, some people thought it was two fluids because they knew about um, negative charge and positive charge. They thought there was two different types of fluids. One was a negative fluid and one was a positive fluid. And so there are a lot of people trying to, to um, explain things as two fluids. But Franklin had an alternative idea. He had the single fluid hypothesis. Okay. Um, and basically, he believed that charge was that every piece of matter had its corresponding charge. And that if you scraped it, you could scrape some of the fluid, the charge, um, to another object. So the reason that you got a buildup of charge is because when you had two dissimilar objects, you were scraping the fluid from one thing to another. 
And, um, and, and that's how the term negative and positive came. So he believed that the, the, the item that had the positive charge had a fluid excess and the uh, item that had the negative charge had a fluid deficit. And since all objects were trying to uh, maintain this ideal quantity of fluid per unit mass, that the positive the, the, the positive one, the one in excess, would somehow try to get back to the negative again and so that everything would be neutral. And um, so that's how we came up with the terms positive and negative. That's how we came up with the terms uh, current um, due to Franklin's idea. Now, the irony of this is that um, this confused Franklin tremendously. Because when he brought his Leyden jars back to the laboratory, he realized that um, the Leyden jars had were negative charge in them. They were not positive charged. They were negatively charged. And so that went counter to his idea that there was fluid, excess fluid coming out of the clouds and he couldn't understand that either. <laughs> so he was, he didn't know why there was a, uh, he didn't know why there was static electricity in clouds. He didn't know how they could possibly be negatively charged because they're supposedly had excess. They should be positively charged. So this confused him tremendously. Um, but later on, as we now know that this fluid isn't really a fluid at all, it's electrons and electrons are negatively charged. And it's the electrons that are building up in the clouds. And it's the electrons that are coming down to the ground. And that's why he collected negative charge in his jars because it was the electrons. But that, that tremendously perplexed him for the rest of his life. He was never able to answer that question either. So, yeah. So, but we still continue to talk. If you look at a, you know, a, a high school textbook, they might talk about uh, voltage is being equivalent to water pressure and current is the equivalent of flow of water through a pipe. Um, so, so we still use those analogies today to teach about electricity. They're very useful. Um, but all of, all of that originated with Franklin's single fluid theory of electricity. Yeah. The fact that we still use those analogies and those models tell us there's still usefulness in the way we think about it. Um, at what point did we start to veer away from using it as our sort of primary idea of how electricity worked? Well, Michael Faraday, who, um, who conveniently was born the day, the year after um, Benjamin Franklin died, he kind of picked up the torch on electricity. And um, Franklin and Faraday uh, had very similar backgrounds. Neither one of them um, had a, a, an education. They were all self-taught. In the case of Franklin, he was, as a youth, he, he, uh, he apprenticed in his brother's printing shop and read everything that came in to be printed in that. So he had gained a lot of his education just by just um, reading what, what, what he was printing. And um, in the case of Faraday, he was a bookbinder, and so he read the books that he was binding. And they both became interested in scientific uh, uh, issues, and so they, they self-educated themselves. Now, Faraday, um, he really picked up where Franklin left off and came up with, um, with a lot of new 
theories about how electricity worked. And he was never a proponent of the fluid idea. <laughs> okay. He he never really liked that idea. He thought it, you know, that he he thought it was a distraction because he because people were trying to find the invisible fluid. And um and he he thought of the fluid as more an analogy, as just we he said, an analogy with how electricity behaved, but he never thought that it really um was a fluid at all. He had different ideas um, about that. His ideas primarily were centered along lines of force. Um, and basically he liked to explain things in terms of um in terms of force fields. Um and um so this led him to uh, investigate the interactions of the of the mag the fields around magnets and the fields around electrodes. And so magnets, uh, you know, I'm talking about permanent magnets now, the type that's in a compass and things like that. Uh, we we now know that they have uh, magnetic fields around them, and if you have two electrodes separated, they will have an electrical field around them. Now, the truth is that magnetic fields and electrical fields are basically the same phenomena viewed from, from different perspectives. That's why they're often called electromagnetic fields. But he was doing work, Faraday was doing work with, um, with electric fields and how they interacted with magnetic fields. And um, he was trying to see he, he, um, whether one could affect the other. And, and to make a long story short, when he was playing with a, with a bar magnet and, try, and pulling it in and out of, of electrical wire, he noticed that while the wire was moving, uh, while the magnet was moving by the wire, he got a small electrical current out of it. And um, if you went back and forth, you could produce an alternating current, which is the same type of currents that our houses are powered by. And he called that electrical induction. So he's getting electrical current flowing um, through the use of a moving magnet. And that's basically how we get all of our electricity now. So he invented electrical induction. And that and that exploded a whole new um, area of, of, of scientific and investigation. So we started out with the only source of electricity being static electricity. So you had to rub glass with silk in order to get that. And then, and the only way to store that was in a Leyden jar. Then we ended up with Volta's electro, um, electrochemical battery uh, with two dissimilar metals producing the flow of electric current. And then uh uh, Faraday brought this to the next level with a new means of producing electricity, which is called electromagnetic induction, where moving a moving a permanent magnet near an electrical wire could get current to flow back and forth through the wire. And none of none of uh, electrical induction uh, has anything to do with a fluid. So uh, we now don't think of uh, electricity in terms of fluid so much anymore as uh, as interaction of of electrical and magnetic fields. It's such an interesting transition. Um, and even farther into our understanding of electricity, we start to dig into how bodies um, work with electricity. And one of the most um, fascinating chapters of your book, but also for me, one of the most challenging was a chapter on neurons. 
Um, I didn't know the history of uh, how this um, experimenting with squid led us to better understand the neuron. Um, but before we get into the details of that, um, this is, I'm just sort of curious as someone who knows this stuff pretty well, um, I've been reading science and tech and math books for a long time. And without a doubt, the topics that I personally always seem to struggle with understanding the most tend to be biochemistry topics, in particular, where electricity meets biology at the very lowest levels. Um, and this is one of the chapters that I struggle with. I've always struggled to understand neurons. And I'm not sure if this is because biochemistry in this particular area is particularly hard and most people struggle with it, or if I'm just not bent well around biochemistry topics. Um, but for some reason, I find it really hard to kind of hold the model of what's going on in my brain because it's somehow I want more visuals or something. It just, I find I have trouble mashing the idea of neurons and electricity together in a way. Yeah. So um, I, I too <laughs> struggle with, with that. Um, and uh, I think most people do. It's a very difficult difficult concept, you know, because now you're going from, uh, you know, you go from biology, which is, um, which is, you know, a description of life. And, um, and then you bring in biochemistry, right? Now you're, you now you're trying to explain biology with chemistry. And then neuroscience goes one step further, where now you're bringing uh, biology, biochemistry, and now electrophysiology. Yeah. So now we've now we've brought physics into the equation. Okay. So we have biology, chemistry, and physics, and you need to understand all of those things to some extent to know how a neuron works. But I think um, one of the simplest ways to think about a neuron is that it is a little uh, Leyden jar. All right. And um, so what I mean by that is that neurons, and again, I don't, uh, for those uh, listeners who may not be aware of how a neuron is structured, you usually have a, a cell body, okay, and it has a very long axon. An axon is a projection, and it can go, it can go millimeters to a meter, you know, you know, uh, there are neurons that have the very, very long projection. And the function of that projection is to carry electrical signal to the next neuron. So um, electrical signals in the nervous system are um, are kind of like the telephone game. <laughs> you know, the, the message is is whispered to the next neuron all the way down the line until it gets to to its its destination. But unlike the telephone game, uh, hopefully the message does not get corrupted along the way. So how, how do these things happen in neurons? Well, I said that a neuron is kind of like a Leyden jar. And what I mean by that is um, neurons are able to store charge um, within them. So they, they have an electrical differential um, between the inside and the outside. And um, they do that, they can do that because their cell membranes, which are made of, let's get some biochemistry in here, they're, they're, they're made of fats, all right? These fats are, um, are, do not collect, conduct electricity very well. So they're so, like the silk in the key experiment. Exactly, like mm -hmm. the silk in the key experiment. And so um, when, when char charge can build up, um, between the inside and the outside and not 
uh, and not flow through, since it can't get through the membrane, um, nothing happens. But if all of a sudden electrical pores in the membrane open, then the electricity can flow across the membrane and and produce an electrical effect. And that will move along the axon. You'll get a wave of electricity along the axon until it gets to the very end, and then it will transfer that a wave of electron to the next neuron and, and go down. So how, do, how, does, um, how does the neuron um, sequester charge like that? It does it by pumping ions across its membrane chemically. So it uses energy, energy from you know when you eat food it's 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 made into uh you know the atp as many of your listeners may have learned in high school the uh the, the powerhouse of the cells the mitochondria make atp which is kind of the currency of of energy in the cell and that energy can be used to to push uh to push ions which are charged atoms across the membrane uh, against uh, against a, a gradient, and so basically, in doing that, that energy now is stored as electrical potential between the inside and the outside of the membrane. And if anything triggers it, an electric an electrical um, burst happens, and it and, and moves along the axon to the next one. So that's a very um, short and <laughs> and neurologically inadequate explanation of what's going on there. But I think in a nutshell, it's quite accurate that the, that the cells basically are little Leyden jars and firing off one will cause a series, a domino effect from one Leyden jar to the next Leyden jar to the next Leyden jar. And that's how the signal will propagate um, along, along the nerve. Interesting. That actually helped me a little bit because now in my kind of mental bottle of what's happening, I'm thinking of there being, I guess, following the sort of um, fluid analogy that we love so much with electricity is I'm thinking of its little valves um, that are kind of letting the electricity flow or not flow. Yeah, they're um, called which, they're called uh, voltage gated channels actually, and they're yeah they are they are in the membrane. And um, two things we should mention um, first of all that um, you mentioned squid axons. Uh, most of what we know about the the, uh, the neurons comes from squid axons. So, why squid axons? Well, um, squid axons are amazing because they're huge. So, squid, this sea animal, if you if you cut one open, those of you who have prepared calamari might have seen this. If you cut one open, its mantle, the outer covering of it, you open it, it looks like a leaf. In fact, on the underside, it has what look like maple leaf veins on it. Those, those veins are not veins at all. They're the axons of squid neurons. And so they're huge compared to, um, to, to human neurons. And so they can actually be taken out and experimented with. And they're so, and they're so large that you can make little electrodes and puncture uh, them. It's, so you have can have electrode inside the axon and outside the axon. And so 
the, the, the charge, you can actually measure the charge across these axons. And that's how that was discovered. Uh, the squid axon has allowed us to do all of these experiments. And what happens in squid axons happens in all axons. So that's how we know about that. And the squid axon actually allowed for, um, for scientists to uh, find those voltage-gated channels, those little gates that are in the membrane. They um, they were able to isolate them uh, with little pipette and a little bit of suction, measure the current through them, and and characterize them. And and those discoveries in the squid axon led to Nobel prizes. And so, um, very fundamental research that um, that is that is very very important to understanding the basic fundamentals of how a nervous system works. I think um, one of the reasons I like the story about the squid and its contributions um, to our understanding of the neuron is it somehow helped me understand that part of the reason I, I think I struggle sometimes um, at this kind of layer of biochemistry where we've got biology, chemistry, and physics all kind of intertwined is my mind's eye is never quite sure what sort of microscopic scope we're at. What zoom level are we at at any particular moment? And I think sometimes that's why I struggle because we think of the atom as that very, very zoomed in and the sort of chemistry is zoomed out a bit and then mm -hmm. biology is zoomed out even further. And something about the bringing in of the squid and talking about how there was a large neuron, even larger than we would normally find. Zooming out another level made it easier. Mm -hmm. And that kind of made me think about all these different levels and trying to hold them all in my head at once. Yeah, the the, the orders of magnitudes of difference in size is another complication to thinking about these things. But um, yes, uh, and it, it poses a challenge for the research, the small scale of what's going on here. But Luckily, there was a squid neuron, and if there there hadn't been these enormous squid neurons, I don't know where we would be these days with, with neuroscience. So fascinating. Um, I also want to talk about electrofishing and electrotaxis because I knew none of this, and this was another section of the book that I really loved reading about, the sort of what is it, but then also us trying to figure out what was going on. I, it felt like um, a bit of a whodunit chapter. There's a little bit of a mystery going on here, and I really enjoyed this chapter of your book. Yeah, well, this is a mystery because it's it, and it hasn't yet been solved. But it's so curious that um, a lot of people, um, <laughs> a lot, a lot of people are trying to figure out what's going on. And so, so electrofishing for your listeners who may not know, which is probably all of them, um, is a way of uh, collecting fish for research purposes from the environment. So, so if, you want to, um, if you want to determine how many fish of a particular species are in a stream or, or, or a lake, um, what you do is you go out with some electrodes and you shock the water and the fish get stunned. They're not killed. They're just stunned. They float up to the surface and you, you collect them with a net, a hand net. You measure them. Uh, you know, you record the species, you record their length and any other information. And, um, and you can do this. You can take a sampling of a lake from different habitats, 
regions of the lake and extrapolate to the whole lake and get a good, pretty good idea what the populations and size distributions of these different uh, fish are. So um, researchers use it quite extensively, and it's been used for over 100 years. The amazing part about this is, is that for some reason, when you, you do this, fish are actually attracted to the positive electrode. This, this is why it works. You put the electrodes in the water and the, and the fish will swim towards the positive electrode, not the negative electrode, just the positive electrode. And there have been all types of theories over the last hundred years about why this happens. And um, some have claimed initially, uh, it was claimed that um, that for some reason, this went back to Faraday's electric fields, that if the fish was swimming along the lines of the electric field, it would um, it would uh, somehow feel less pain from the electricity. And so that's why it's actually swam in that direction to decrease its pain. Well, that turned out to be nonsense. That, that that wasn't the reason. Another had to do with some type of reflex action in the muscles of the fish so that the uh, you shock the muscles on one side of the body uh, and that caused it to, to twist. And then you, and when it twisted, the muscles were shocked on the other side of the body. And then this back and forth twisting caused it to end up at the electrode, but that didn't explain why the positive and, and not the negative electrode, because you would expect it to work the same way. So, so, so that, that didn't really work. Um, uh, there were theories about um, the, the electricity causing, um, causing epileptic seizures in the fish. And that doesn't seem, seem to, to hold true. So um the fact of the matter is that still nobody knows why this happens. It's in, it's important um, for electrofishing to work that this happens, and people exploit that. But um, it 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 no one really knows the reason. Now, some researchers um, in Canada, in fact, at the University of Toronto, and I, and I don't remember their names, um, but they are they have created these little microscopic. Uh, wells. So there's there's a field of science called microfluidics. And what they've done is this controls fluid across a microscope slide. And what they can do is they can put in larva of fish. Uh, these these larvae are just three or four days old. So they've, they've hatched from their eggs and uh, they put them on these microscope slides. Um, they run electricity across the slide and they see which way the larvae swim. Well, guess what? These larvae swim towards the positive electrode. And if you switch the terminals, they'll turn around and swim the other way. And so the reason they've done this on this small scale is it allows them to look at different um, uh, inhibitors of neurotransmitters. Neurotransmitters are chemicals that that are um, in the nervous system that, that transmit uh, signals um, between neurons. And so they can use inhibitors, uh, chemical inhibitors of those neurons to try to um, to try to deduce which which neurons in the body are responsible for this. And so they've made some preliminary findings um, that suggest that some of the same uh, 
neurons that are involved in Parkinson's disease, the human disease, Parkinson's disease, may be responsible for um, this electrotaxis in fish, this, this, this phenomena where the fish swim to the positive electrode. So it remains an unsolved mystery. Uh, it's been around for a hundred years and uh, it's being used as a probe to investigate um, uh, medical diseases, including, including Parkinson's disease. This is kind of um, an interesting commonality in, it seems like comes up with electricity over and over again, this idea of we discover a sort of utilitarian thing that works. We're like, all right, let's make this work. And we then a bunch of people start looking at, but why does it work? And the right. why does it work takes a lot longer to figure out than the how. Um, I remember you talking about the kind of era of the first era of electrical machines used sort of as cure-alls in medicine um, and how that really that kind of generation of tinkerers really kind of who had an interest in optimizing the technology rather than caring too much about the base science also helped drive it. And some of the electrofishing stuff stri struck me as very similar, but a more sort of modern day example of it where we're, there's a way that electricity works for us and we're not quite sure why or how. And there are people who are interested in that um, but there's also just, you know, we're continuing to optimize that usage and make that work better. It's it's interesting how those two things feed into each other a lot in this topic. Yeah, I think it's particularly true for electricity. I think it happens in many fields, but in electricity, because electricity attracted a lot of uh, people that could be described as instrument makers. Mm. So they weren't really scientists, they were instrument makers. And so they they would make electrical instruments by a kind of trial and error method without really uh, understanding or even caring to understand how things worked. So um, a lot of advances, particularly in electrical generators um, and, and medical treatment devices uh, worked by that principle, like, well, well, we'll change this and see if it's better. We'll change that. We'll see if it's better. But there wasn't any first principles that were driving the changes. So um, so it's kind of, uh, I think, uh, the electrical field is, um, is replete in examples like that. One particular example that springs to mind that delighted me was one that I knew about but didn't know about its interesting attachment. Uh, the electric belt had an attachment that I was not aware of, which I found delightful. <laughs> Yeah. So uh, one thing that's interesting about the field of medicine is that any kind of new phenomena, physical phenomena that arrives, um, doctors are quite ready to uh, put it into practice. And um, one of the uh, things that electricity was first used for was medical treatment. In fact, because electricity, as I mentioned, could cause muscles to move, um, people that had troubles with their muscles, particularly paralyzed people, um, actually sought out electrical treatments. And some of the people that were um, sought out for these things included Benjamin Franklin, who um, complained in one of his letters to a friend that people were coming to Philadelphia from all over the state um, to be treated with electrical shocks by him because they heard that electricity um, helped muscles move. And uh, he actually 
treated some of these people and mentions that initially they seem to, you know, the muscles seem to respond and they, and they got warm, the muscles got warm and he, and everyone was hopeful, but um, the treatments were quite painful and they didn't seem to really convey any benefit at all. Um, and so uh, he stopped doing it. Um, Volta was also um, contacted by people for treatments. And, um, and so this idea of, of using electricity, particularly for muscle things, but also other types of, of uh, problems was there right from the beginning. And in the late 19th century, there was actually a field of medicine called electrician. Okay, it wasn't like what you think of an electrician today. It was a field of medicine where doctors specialized in treating every kind of disease you could think of um, with electricity. And um, in fact, one of the books, uh, the textbooks at the time, <laughs> it's noteworthy that the only disease the doctor could find that didn't seem to benefit from electrical treatment was gout. So he, he was willing to treat everything else but gout. So, um, so, so anyway, um, the doctors had a uh, they had a monopoly on this. But the development of um, the development of batteries allowed people to start doing electrical treatments in their home. And um, one of the things that um, was developed was something called. By a company called Pulvermacher. It was the Pulvermacher Electric Belt Company. And it, it's basically a belt where the entire, you know, which would be the leather part of the belt is now like batteries around the entire belt. And there was a, uh, there are electrodes at two spots in the back. And um, you put it on and you wore it for a period of time. You would feel a tingling because of the electricity in the batteries. And you were supposed to wear this every day for a certain period of time. And it was promised to do everything under the sun. Um, now, one of the things under the sun that it was supposed to do was cure any type of uh, sexual problems that you might have. And... Um, People were going to doctors, uh, you know, for sexual issues, men and women, and they were being shocked, um, painful shocks to their genitals to try to um, alleviate them of these problems. Well, the Pulvermacher belt, first of all, it wasn't painful. It just kept, it caused this tingling sensation, um, which was people found quite pleasant. Um, and uh, they could do it in the privacy of their own home and they could buy the product through the mail. And so the Pulvermacher belt was a big hit, particularly when uh, they added this attachment that Rochelle has mentioned, which was basically a scrotal bag uh, that's similar to a, um, you know, like an athletic supporter, which extended the tingling now to, to around the scrotum. So um, this became a very, very popular uh, product that was marketed to older men that had impotence and younger men that had had um you know wet dreams and everything under the sun and um and it it didn't really end until the food and drug administration um in 1906 started demanding that products um being sold to the public had to demonstrate um their effectiveness and uh 
this product couldn't demonstrate its effectiveness like anything. And then on top of that, there was uh, mail fraud laws that came in at the time that if you if you tried to um, perpetrate a fraud on the public through the mail, um, that you could be uh, you could be uh, charged with a crime. And so this product was sold through the mail. And so the product basically basically disappeared. <laughs> but uh, so so that's the story with the uh, Pulvermacher belt. Shortly after that, um, uh, all of uh, electrical treatments came under close scrutiny, and pretty soon the practice, the the subspecialty of medicine called electrician disappeared, and it became almost taboo to use electricity to treat people in medicine until. Um, until many years later, and and now it's making a resurgence. Yeah, a friend of mine um, had a stroke recently, and one of the things that um, his, him and his partner were telling us was that they were using on the side where he still didn't have uh, any movement and any ability to control his hand. They were doing some kind of electrical therapy mm -hmm. um, that sort of tensed the muscles to try mm -hmm. and and mm -hmm. I don't remember the details, but it was quite interesting to see the video of that, where you can see him sort of hooked up to something and it's sending some pulses through that will make him clench and unclench his hand, uh, which was quite interesting to watch. Right. And, and beyond that, elect, um, we now are connecting the nervous system to uh, elect the electrical systems by what's called brain machine interfaces. Um, so a amputee who has an artificial arm uh, you know, a, pr a prosthetic arm with um, mechanical uh, devices in the hand uh, rather than muscles. Uh, those, it's possible now to connect those prosthetic arms directly to the nerves in the arm, the severed nerves in the arm, so that the patient can, um, by just by thinking about moving the hand in the same way that they would their normal hand, they can get the prosthesis to move because the brain is still sending those signals through that nerve, except there's nowhere to go because the nerve is severed. So now when that nerve is connected electrically to the prosthesis, the prosthesis is using that information from the brain to, to, um, to guide what movements it should make. So this is, a, this is a whole field called advanced prosthetics. Some of your listeners may have been familiar with uh, Luke Skywalker getting one of these arms in one of the <laughs> Star Wars movies, and it's very similar to that. In fact, one of the prototypes is called the Luke by one of the companies that that's making them. So that that work is ongoing too. And there's also deep brain stimulation that's being used to treat Parkinson's disease. Of course, there's there's pacemakers, there's cochlear implants. Um, you know, it just the list goes on and on. And the difference between what's happening now. And the difference what's being happening then is that now these advances are being corroborated by clinical trials. So it's not just sufficient to have a patient that says, oh, I had, I had this disease and I got shocked and, and everything's good now. Or doctors say, like, I treated these patients. Now it actually has to be tested in a clinical trial. So that no one can dispute, uh, well, you could dispute it, but it would be it would be hard to disprove that these uh, that these devices are having benefits. Um, some of it you don't you can even see these benefits. The person has a um, has a um, has a deep uh, brain implant, 
for Parkinson's disease, when you turn on the electricity, the tremors stop. When you do, when you, when you turn off the electricity, the tremors resume again. So this is uh, the use of electricity. Uh, beyond that, there are artificial sight devices that are being used that are based on electrical implants in the brain. There are hearing devices that involve um, about implants in the brainstem. I mean, there really is no limit to how electricity is being deployed in medicine now. And I think um, the difference is that it, the clinical trials are proving these results. Even the use of um, electroconvulsive um, therapy, ECT, um, to treat depression has been shown to be extremely effective. So, um, yeah, so, so that's the difference between what happened in the past and what happens now. In the past, it was just anecdotal and a lot of fraud. And, and now um, these things are being um, corroborated by clinical trials. And also we have more knowledge of how the nervous system works so that we can, we can explore these things based uh, a, little more, uh, a little more knowledge than they did in the past. It was really interesting on the section you wrote about prosthetic arms to hear about the different, because a lot of the most cutting edge prosthetics are still very much in research mode. These aren't things that people can just go in and get. Um, a lot of that advanced stuff is is very much kind of specific people who have agreed to be part of the research um, that uh, are working with some of these advanced prosthetics. But that section was quite interesting. And I think, because um, I have read uh, some books and articles before about all kinds of different prosthetics, um, old you know, sort of older prosthetics, the journey to some of the possible futures of prosthetics. But I think one of the interesting ways you frame this chapter was by opening it with the experiments in a school about controlling other people's arms. Um, there is nothing in your book that made me want to do an experiment more <laughs> than that section. I really want to control someone else's arm and I really want someone else to control my arm because I think that is such an interesting way to experience a lot of this stuff that seems so impossible to experience. Yeah. I mean, uh, so what Michelle is referring to is there's a company called Backyard Brain. Um, I have no commercial interest in this company, but uh, since people are going to try to find it anyway, I'll just tell you what the name is. It's Backyard Brain. And um, what they do is they produce um, uh, relatively inexpensive electrical devices that students in high school, or they claim even lower in grade school, can use to do um, neuroscience experiments. And um, one of the things that they do is they use um, skin electrodes to detect um, to detect nerve signals from one person's arm and send those signals to another person. So, so, so you, you pick up an electrical signal coming from the student's brain down their, their arm headed towards their hand. And um, you transfer that to an amplifier because the electrical signal is rather weak and that signal gets amplified and it goes to an electrode on the arm of another person, in this case, two students. And when the one student, the student uh, who lifts their arm, uh, the arm of the other student also also moves. Uh, so they move they move in synchrony, and um, and so that's uh, that is all done with devices 
that the students are able to make themselves in class. They, they use uh, something for Arduino technology which, with little shields that are a way that uh, students can, can very cheaply and inexpensively make small electronic devices. And so they go through an exercise of making these devices, the amplifiers, um, which they call spike, spiker boxes, and then, um, and then doing these types of experiments to ask all kinds of questions about, uh, about how this works. And they also, in the, in the class that I visited and talk about uh, in the book, they had previously done similar things with getting a uh, cockroach's uh, leg to move. And, uh, and, then, and then after they figured out how, how to use the instrument on the cockroach's legs, then they did this experiment with their own arms. So this is, you know, I think this is really... Uh, great example of STEM education. And I think it opens up neuroscience and electrical electronics to students who normally wouldn't, would only get it much later in their careers, like when they went to college. Now this is coming down to the high school level and perhaps even younger than that for those students in grade school that are particularly uh, uh, gifted and, and, and interested in STEM. So, um, so, so these technologies are, are, are excellent. So we've come a long way from just dissecting frogs in high school. Uh, you know, we brought this to the next level. I was particularly delighted where they were thinking up their own experiments to run with this. And uh, one of the groups tried um, the person who was the controller. They sort of restrained their arm to see if they could capture the intent in the other person's arm. And it it worked. And I felt like that was a moment where you really start to see the possible future potential of what could happen with prosthetic limbs is when you've got one person with an arm strapped down who's willing that arm to move, but is moving another arm. That really, for me, makes that that leap to prosthetics feel doable. It feels like we that is a, a leap we can definitely make. It might take a while, but it feels like we could get there. Yeah. Yeah. And um and and the students themselves um recognize the connection with uh, the, this technology and prosthetics, you know. So it's it's it just it brings things full circle in their thought process. You know, it it they, they see the potential, they sense they see the interaction between neurology and electricity, you know, they're thinking on on a um they're able to do experiments themselves and come up with hypotheses, you know. Um they're they're these types of hands-on science work in high school, I think really is, is stimulating the next generation to go on and do really great things. So I'm a big supporter of STEM education, and I think we need to do more of this kind of stuff in school. Tim, it's been wonderful to have you here. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Well, thank you, Rach, Rochelle. It's been really uh, a real fun to talk, and I hope your listeners have have enjoyed this as much as I've enjoyed discussing this with you. And um, I appreciate the depth in which you you read my book because it's much more fun to have a uh, a discussion with someone who has uh, who's read all the nuances of these things. And uh, and I hope that uh, your readers can appreciate uh, what an excellent interviewer you are. Oh, thanks. That's very kind of you. Um, and for anyone listening, uh, there is a lot more in the book than what we've had time to talk about today, including, uh, among other things, a fascinating and very slightly gruesome chapter about the history and science of 
um, execution by electrocution, which of course we haven't had time to dig into today. Uh, if you want to learn more about Tim Jorgensen, his research or his books, you guessed it. You can find links in the show notes for this episode, which are available in your podcast app or on our website, scienceforthepeople.ca. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time on Science for the People. Science for the People is listener-supported. You can find us on Patreon, where you can support us with monthly donations in any amount. Your support keeps us afloat and able to keep making great new episodes, and we thank you for it. The show is produced by Rochelle Saunders and edited by Ryan Bromsgrove. We get help with special projects from K.O. Myers. Our theme song was written and recorded by Fractal Pattern, and its title is Binary Consequence. The show is hosted by Bethany Brookshire, Anika Hazra, Marion Kilgour, and me, Rochelle Saunders. <laughs> <laughs>